As we continue to work our way through uh, a look at the nature of love, let's go before the Lord in prayer. Lord, you, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light for my path. And with it, you show me where I can stand in a dark and troubled world. And with it, you show me how I ought to travel in a world with many conflicting voices. And Father, as we look to your word, may it shine light into the darkness of our hearts and expose to us both our sin and especially your love and the glory of your gospel. And Father, as we spend time in your word, would you mold us and make us into the image of your son, Jesus Christ, our Savior and perfect lover. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 3 through 8a. This is the word of God. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoings, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. You may be seated. Let me pray. Father, as my words are true to your word, may they be taken to heart. But if my words should stray from yours, may they be quickly forgotten. I pray this in the name and in the power of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I've likely shared with some of you how I once had the startling opportunity to listen to a man tell me about the time he cursed out his wife because she was not at home to receive the flowers that he had ordered her. (laughs) She was out buying diapers, but he was furious. He was indignant. In a word, he was rude. And he spoke to her as if she had intentionally set out to ruin his carefully crafted plan, which consisted of a few keystrokes on a floral delivery app. He wanted to surprise her, and instead... He was surprised. And so he berated her for how embarrassing it was for him because he had told the guys in the shop what he was going to do. And now they were going to laugh at him because he had made such a big deal about these flowers. I was so astonished that I asked him, make, I just want to make sure I have this straight. You bought your wife flowers and then you cussed her out when she wasn't there. Yes. Why did you buy her flowers in the first place? Because I love her. And I wondered out loud whether that was the message that she had received. Now, it's certainly easier to pick this episode from someone's life that no one here knows than to share stories of my own rudeness, my own self-seeking tendency towards Susan and or the kids. But I picked that story because I hope that you, like I, when I saw it play out, I immediately recognized that love is not that. 
And Paul, in this section, this verbal listing of what love does not do, gives us two negative statements about love. And in doing so, we learn two contrasting and positive statements about what love does, about the quality of real love. And because we get another glimpse into the nature of love, the nature of God himself, and how it is that he has loved us. And as we gaze at our Father's love, as we notice that it is an empowering love, we'll also see that it is an example for us that exhorts us and equips us so that we can both honor and sacrifice for those we love. I hope that we see that the antidote to rudeness is honor, and the antidote to self-seeking is sacrifice. Paul first notes that love is not rude, and now again we've seen in a couple of instances already that Paul uses a very rare form or obscure form of a pretty standard word here. He's using it in the verbal form. It's basic form. It's used to communicate indecent acts or words or unbecoming actions or shameful actions, and very rarely it's used to speak to a type of deformity. Uh, One ancient writer, in fact, uh, used this word uh, to mean baldness. Which, of course, if we took that meaning into the text, we would read that Paul was saying, love is not bald, which, of course, I take offense to. (laughs) And not just because I'm follically challenged, it just doesn't fit. So if we set aside that rare use and we look at the way the ESV translates it as rude, it's also translated as acts unbecomingly or behaves itself unseemly, we'll notice that we generally translate it as either an adjective, which describes the noun of love, or as an adverb describing the act, uh, how it is that we behave in love. But when Paul is giving this to his uh, early listeners, they would hear this word that Paul was saying, uh, that love uh, it's hard to say in the English. The, the whole idea that we're, we're not to rude each other with love or shame each other with love or dishonor each other. It's the word that Paul used. And if we remember that Paul appears to be referencing specific problems in the Corinthian church that they were struggling with in this listing, then we can take this word and look to see where Paul has already used this word in his writing. And we are treated to one occasion in which the exact form is used. Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 7.36. There Paul writes, If anyone thinks he is not behaving properly, that's the way the Greek translates uh, the text or the word that we see as rude in our text, that he's not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let Let them marry. It is no sin. In that context, Paul is saying that if a man is struggling with sexual temptations to his intended bride, his betrothed, it is much better that they enter into the noble institution of marriage than for him to struggle with and commit sexual sin with her outside of marriage. If he were to do that, he both sins against God and shames her. That's one instance. Other scholars note that Paul uses not the same form, but a a form of this verb 
in, a, in other areas as well. Chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, for instance. Paul writes, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you of a kind that is not even tolerated among the pagans. A man has his father's wife. What's interesting is in that use, immediately after that verse, Paul in verse 2 says, and you are arrogant, or literally, and you are puffed up, recalling Pastor Lloyd's reflection on that word from last week. So here, chapter 5, like our text in chapter 13, Paul is both rebuking them for their shameful behavior and their arrogance about it, neither of which is loving. The use of this Greek word isn't strictly limited to sexual misconduct. Several commentators note that Paul uses, again, a form of the same word in several other places where he corrects Corinthian behavior precisely because it is not loving. For instance, Paul uses this to rebuke and to correct the women at Corinth who were engaging in what Paul calls a shameful behavior of prophesying with their heads uncovered. Uses the same word for shameful behavior there. That's chapter 11, verses 2 to 16, if you want to look that up. In that same chapter, chapter 11, another instance is shown uh, where he's speaking about the Lord's table. And on that, the New Testament scholar Gordon Fee remarks that at the Lord's table, the haves were humiliating or shaming those who had nothing. Perhaps you may remember when Pastor Lloyd preached on that, he talked about the fact that it appeared that the wealthy would rush in for the best seats in the best room of the house, leaving the poor with little place to sit and nothing for communion. And Gordon Fee remarks, Christian love cares too much for the rest of the community to behave in such unseemly ways. John Calvin, on this text, sees that same behavior, and he remarks, love observes moderation and propriety. Another scholar says, love does not act in ways that are contrary to the requirements of propriety and good order. They all recognize that there is a thoughtfulness, there is a carefulness in the way we love one another. There are many of opportunities for us to reflect on the Corinthians and even in our own lives where we are rude. True love doesn't shamefully expose, but rather honors. True love covers our shame. I'm reminded of God's love tenderly shown, even in the garden. You will remember that one of the first immediate effects of the fall of Adam and Eve breaking God's covenant not to eat of the fruit of the particular tree was that they realized they were naked and they were ashamed. In the Greek, uh, in the Old Testament Greek, that same word is used there. Uh, they began to attempt to cover their own shame by their own industry. We read that they sowed for themselves fig leaves to cover them. And that was a temporary covering at best. And yet God, in his tender love, does so much better. In verse 15 of Genesis 3, we hint at a promised Messiah that it would be Eve's descendants who would crush the serpent's head. 
But then again, there's another hint at that sacrifice when we read in verse 20 that God made for Adam and Eve garments of skin and he clothed them. God's love covers our shame. His love covers our sin and we are invited to love just like that. Again, you see this picture in Ezekiel chapter 16 where Jerusalem is represented as a young girl. And in several places in that passage, and sometimes through her own doing, she becomes naked and ashamed. And again, in the Greek Old Testament, it's the same verb that we've been talking about here in chapter 13. Ezekiel 6 verse 8 captures God's response. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you are at the age for love, and I spread the the corner of my garment over you, and I covered your nakedness. And I made a vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God. God's love covers our shame. And we, all of us who are members here at Faith Covenant or elsewhere in Christ's church, have made promises to each other. We have called, we are called to love one another, and part of loving one another is a commitment to cover each other's shame. What might that look like? It might be as simple as not repeating a story that you have heard, which casts a brother or a sister in a negative light. It certainly means and calls for chastity in our singleness, faithfulness in our marriage. Positively, we can engage in loving like this when we seek opportunities to honor one another, to praise right conduct, to encourage them when we see honorable behavior, when we see them caring for loving each other. Such is the love of our God. We are called likewise to look for ways to honor one another, to cover their shame if we can, but to point them to the love of God in any case, who again covers our shame with his garments of grace and righteousness. This is love. Paul continues, love does not insist on its own way. And again, what Paul shares as a negative, this self-seeking tendency can be flipped to reveal the positive, the the declarative side of love. Love is others-focused. Love is sacrificial. Paul's phrase, the verbal negative phrase, which the ESV translates as does not insist on its own way, is variously translated in other versions as does not seek its own, it's not self-seeking, does not demand its own way, and finally seeketh not her own where love is personified as feminine. Paul uses, the the verb Paul uses that's regularly translated as seeks is a verb that can be both positive, as in Matthew 6.33, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, or used negatively when Jesus asked the crowd in John 7, why do you seek to kill me? In our section in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, what Paul is showing that the person is seeking is himself, self-seeking. Paul makes the point that love does not seek oneself. In other words, the lover doesn't seek to love himself first. 
This idea perhaps runs a little countercultural today, where we are told to take care of ourselves first. Now, positively, that might be so that we have the ability to care for one another. But I think negatively and more likely, it's because we like being cared for. And we know what we like, and so we often take care of ourselves first. Furthermore, we may see some biblical precedent for this idea. After all, in Leviticus 19, verse 18, where we are told or we are commanded, we are to love our neighbor as ourself. One could therefore argue that the command is to us as well, a kind of love yourself so you can love your neighbor. And that is at least how we seem to practically apply this. We may say that Levitical command is given again multiple times in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, they all repeat it. Paul repeats it both in Galatians 5 and Romans 9, and James cites it in his second chapter. And yet as we read any or all of those passages in their context, we realize that that command to love thy neighbor is set and the, the as thyself portion is not commanded, but rather assumed. Moses, Jesus, Paul, they know that people generally love themselves. We rarely need to remind others, uh, choose something you like. Take take the thing that you like. Do something that you enjoy. Pleasing ourselves comes naturally. There are, of course, some who struggle with the challenges and the pain of a low self-esteem and or depression. And while that's not the focus of this text, I would submit to you that they instinctively know what they would like, how they would like to feel how they would want to feel better or be better. In other words, they have an idea of what love could look like, what positive self-love could be. They just don't experience it for a variety of reasons, and they suffer because of that. Self-love is assumed. It's all too natural, and Paul challenges the Corinthians to, to resist that kind of love where one elevates themselves into that self-seeking or insisting on a selfish interest. And Paul says, that is not love at all. I really appreciated how Dr. Yarborough, who's a seminary professor that both Lloyd and I enjoyed, uh, he he wrote uh, when he was commenting on one of the Psalms, he says, self-awareness and self-care does not mean self-indulgence, much less self-centeredness both acute temptations in a sensual and narcissistic age. This isn't a call not to care for oneself. It's a call, Paul calls us, not to insist on one's self. And this isn't the first time that Paul's challenged the Corinthian church with their self-seeking ways. It may have started as early as the first chapter where he rebukes them for saying, well, I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or, I follow Paul, or those who are really spiritual, using the trump card. I follow Christ. It could be seen as nothing more than a thinly veiled attempt to distance oneself from others, to close myself down from listening to what you say, to hear you, to consider you. Love does not seek its own. It seems to fit there even if it's only implied. 
But more directly, Paul addresses the tendency in the 10th chapter. And if you want to turn with me there, I'm going to look at a few verses in verses 22 to 33 in chapter 10. That's a section that Paul begins in verse 23, where he says that while all things are lawful, that doesn't mean they're all profitable. While all things are lawful, it doesn't mean that they all build up. And then Paul immediately says, therefore, let no one seek his own good. Again, using a form of this verb that we're looking at today. Don't seek your own. Don't insist on your own way, but the good of his neighbor. Paul in that section in chapter 10 goes on to give a few examples of what this may look like with respect to food and especially meat sacrificed to idols. Now, in this section, he never specifically mentions that these actions of sacrificing one's preference for the preference of another is loving. In fact, Paul never uses the word love at all, and yet it's obvious that that's exactly the point he's making. Love does not insist on its own way. Love defers to the other. And he wraps up that whole section in verses 31 and following, where Paul says, So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Give no offense to the Jew or to the Greek or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking, same word again, not seeking my own advantage, but that of the many, that they may be saved. Paul makes that same point even more briefly in Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. And there he says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In summary, then Paul is saying, love puts others first. Love makes sacrifices. Love resists the pull to put ourselves first. One scholar says this is a call to root up that principal nature uh, or principle that's been wrought into our nature, that self-seeking principle. Calvin explains it this way. From this we may infer how very far we are from having love implanted in us by nature. For we are naturally prone to have love and care for ourselves and aim at our own advantage. Nay, to speak more correctly, we are hurried into it and rush headlong into it. Calvin notes, for so perverse an inclination... The only remedy is love, which leads us to leave off caring for ourselves and to feel concerned for our neighbors so as to love them and be concerned for their welfare. I appreciate one writer who notes that that phrase, love seeks not his own, the seeks not his own part, it implies an act of the will rather than simply a reflection of the intellect. He says, it is the decisive direction of the human will. In other words, it takes intentionality, effort, and even training. First in our training, we are to be reminded again of what love ought to look like. Paul says, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. And so we look to Christ 
and his love. And immediately we are presented with the highest and most perfect picture of love. In fact, it's a picture we're going to participate in at the Lord's table in just a few minutes. 1 John 3.16 says it like this, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Rarely does our call to love one another call to die for one another, but it does demand that we live for one another, that we are willing to sacrifice our time, our convenience, our talents, our energy, our attention, perhaps even our hopes and dreams for the sake of another. What does that sacrificial love look like? Well, it could be as simple as filling out a Christmas shoebox to bless someone you've never met. It might look a little bit more complicated than that, however, of delaying or deferring a vacation to free up resources for someone in need. Maybe even more sacrificial to actually deny oneself an ambition or a dream or a vocation to be a blessing to someone else. Love, true love, is sacrificial. In relationships, it looks like real uh, sacrificial love in servant leadership for the husband and in gracious submission for the wife. I would say, husbands, if you find yourself frustrated because it doesn't seem to you that your wife submits to your leadership, don't insist on your own way. Love does not do that. Instead, and and, and actually submission isn't anything you can take from her anyway. Submission is only something that she can offer as a gift. I would say rather consider And if you dare, even ask her, why is submitting to you so hard? But be ready for a challenging answer because it's likely going to be that you regularly put yourself first in your decisions and your demands. It's no easier for the wife, but in my experience, when the husband begins to regularly set aside his wants for her benefit or for the real benefit of the whole family, then good things happen. When love is seen, sacrificial love, love that surrenders to the other, when love is seen, it's easier to respond to, which is why we look to the Lord. Bruce Winter, he remarks that love provides both the stability and the consistency in which life thrives. If you want to know how to sacrifice Look to Christ. Christ is a picture of sacrificial love. Love, the love from God, is a love that both covers our shame, which we may be weighted down this morning by, and the love of Christ is sacrificial. And this is key. Because we can love, and we can only love, both in our ability to honor another in love and to sacrifice in love, We can only love because he first loved us. Let's pray. Father, it would be easy to look, when we look at love, when we look at how we are often rude, how we often shame one another, 
uh, to just simply feel guilty about that or how we often seek our own ends to simply just feel guilty about that. Instead, rather, let us look to you. Let us see real love, the nature of love. Father, that you demonstrated that love by giving us your son, Jesus Christ, who covers our shame and has sacrificed even his own life for us. And Father, I pray that when we really see that love, we would find that we are enabled to love one another like that as well. Father, we trust you in your word, that you will work your word into our lives, and by your spirit you will change us, that we too begin to look like your son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.